Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello, everyone. David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I hope you can also hear and appreciate my improvement or increased sound quality or the clarity of my voice. We got a new microphone copied the same one that Joe Rogan is using. So we're very, very quickly coming for his top spot. And I think the sound quality is going to help a little bit along the way. So hopefully it actually does sound a bit better for you. I have a fantastic episode for you today. Honestly, absolutely brilliant. I have Dwayne Chambers on. I'm sure a lot of you know Dwayne, but some of you do, some of you don't. will know his some of his story, but you will know way more of his story after today's episode. So Dwayne is a, a British sprinter. He's one of the fastest European sprinters ever in the 100 meters. And he's had a bit of a mad career from being one of the fastest or, or the fastest kid in the world at one stage. And now he's 44 and he's one of the fastest 44-year-olds in the world, if not the fastest. And in between that, a bit of a crazy career that involved a doping ban and coming back to sport and going into different sports and kind of redeeming himself and just rehabilitating his image and himself and all of those things along the way. And we spoke about, we kind of went through his career and spoke about all of that. And honestly, I left this episode walking on air. I was buzzing to listen to a man just who's so honest and so just so clear about who he is now and where he's going and all that stuff. Honestly, it was unbelievable. And I can never look at another the level of detail he went into for his preparation for some big races and what's going on behind the scenes and what's going on in, in his head and the intimidation tactics between, with other sprinters and all that stuff. I can never watch another race the same way again after that. So tune in, make sure you give Dwayne a follow and all that stuff. I really appreciate this episode. I thought he was so, so, so good. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Here's Dwayne Chambers. Here we go, Dwayne. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you? I'm well, thank you, David. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little bit nervous because um, and excited. I was excited and nervous for this because I don't usually like prepare for for podcasts or anything like that because yeah, I'm I'm I just know I just know the people I'm talking to a little bit better. Yeah. But for you, I was like on Wikipedia this morning. I don't know how accurate it, I don't know how accurate it is, but I at least have some a list of your kind of career stuff, which was actually very interesting to go through. Yeah, it's quite extensive, isn't it? I looked at it the other day and I was like, Jesus, this is like an encyclopedia. <laughs> it is, yeah. And there's like a million references at the bottom. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I'll give people a little bit of context as to how yeah. this interview or this uh, podcast came about. I was on Instagram one day and I just looked and I was looking at like who shared my post and I saw your name. I was like, Dwayne Chambers, I know that name. <laughs> so I clicked in and yeah, it kind of just went from there. I think I helped you. Hopefully helped you a small bit with your Achilles recently, probably a bit more to do. But um, I just asked you then. I had to I had to ask, would you come on? So here we yeah, are. Absolute pleasure. You helped me because actually when we got on Zoom the other day, it was the day before national trial. So we're talking what the 24th of June mm-hmm. 2022. So I was having a few little issues with my Achilles, so just to put context for the viewers. And I thought, oh, this is because your stuff's very interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm learning to. What I find is, as coaches, we focus more on the running and the lifting of what we do and not so much on the biomechanics of how the body actually works. So when I listen to your stuff, I'm like, well, if the body functions properly, we A, reduce the amount of injuries we could incur and then you get an understanding of why the body's moving in a particular way or not. 
Mm-hmm. So I found your stuff very interesting. So I thought, right, let me give you a shout out, see if you're available. Mm-hmm. Um, I seem to be having like quite a few issues with my Achilles, which is funny because I've gone through an entire career of almost 32 years of not having any injuries. I've hardly had any little niggles here and there, but nothing that's taken me out for all season. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm having to battle with injuries now. Yeah. So I'm really having to focus on how I manage my body, how I recover, how it works. And by becoming a student of the sport now is, I find very interesting. So no, thank you for that. I think it, it, it'll, it'll hopefully help you in your coaching as well. Some of the injuries, it can be frustrating, but... Uh... Like you will come across athletes over the years now where, or maybe you have, or you will, where they are more prone to injury and you start to actually understand what's going on there. Um, So yeah, I think injuries teach you a lot, but they're, they're frustrating. But the fact that you're even, so what age are you now? 44. What time did you run the other day? So I ran a 10.51, although when they went aided, which means you're allowed to win a speed limit of up to two meters per second which is allowable within track and field or athletics but anything beyond that is for example if it was a 2.1 or 2.2 wind behind you they then regard that as a wind aided performance so it wouldn't be taken as a qualification mark say if you go for the olympic game they wouldn't take that as a uh, a valid performance so i had a wind oh god what was it three or plus four i'm not sure but for me, that's a great achievement because it's taken my legs to that speed. You know, and as a 44-year-old, that's probably one of the fastest times I've run in a long time or any 44-year-old has for that fact. So I'm taking claim of the fastest 44-year-old out in the world. <laughs> <laughs> how, uh, how have you? Actually, I'll ask you this question and then you can kind of go into a little bit more of a, an intro, I suppose, for people who maybe don't know you. I think a lot of people will, some people will know your name yeah. and then others maybe won't as much. But before I do that, how have you stayed so fast? To be fair, a lot of it stems down to just my genetic makeup. To be honest with you, when I was younger, I didn't understand what genetics meant or really came across the word. I heard it a lot, but I never really paid attention to what it actually, its actual requirements or, or what it actually meant in that uh, space. So I just put it down to just a lot of hard work. Now, genetically, if you've got those, that physical makeup, yes, work comes easier. Performances are easier, but I, I am myself for like a lot of athletes. When you're genetically gifted, you don't work as hard. And I'm being honest, I've got away with it because genetically I can do stuff that becomes a lot easier to me. Mm-hmm. Um, later on in my career, I start have to now require hard work and, and 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 rest. But genetically, I've got a body that if I eat unhealthily, I stay the same. If I eat healthy, I stay the same. If I lift. I turn into an incredible Hulk. So I've got to move. <laughs> yeah. If I lift weights, I, I balloon up. And at one stage, it was great because it looked good in, in the eye, but it was a lot of hard work to carry that weight down the track. So over the years, you learn what's going to be the best balance for your body. And, you know, I've just started to pay a little bit more attention to what I have and, and using it wisely. So genetics is the key. I was always aware of genetics because I was the opposite of all those things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, not, not, no, there's people at the complete other end, but um, yeah, I had, to work, so, I had to work hard for a lot of my gains. So question to you. So how does one determine who gets genetics or what is it? Is it stem from parents? Is it, what is it? Yeah, parents, yeah. Choose, okay. the, choose the right parents, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because my, 
Mum didn't do anything to have anything to do with sport. Neither did my dad. But if you saw my dad, you'd see a replica of me. And he didn't do sport. He was just, I guess, built the same way. Mm-hmm. So he didn't do anything. My, my older sister, who used to run for Great Britain, she had the genetic makeup too. So I definitely would say it came from my dad's side of things. But I never saw any of them compete, um, especially my dad anyway. I didn't see anything. So I had no reference point of this is something I could do. Yeah. I just noticed at school, I was a head case in school in the sense that I was just fidgety. I could not sit down for any length of time. But put me on a playing field, man, I would run all day long. Mm-hmm. But what I found hard is going from just playing in school, running around and beating every kid in the, on the block to then putting that hard, to that, to that putting that speed into a training environment where you have to train consistently. That I found hard and I still do to this day. Because I also feel that my body is set up in a way I'm similar to a Formula One car. I can't be pushed too far, but I can't be under pushed because then I won't get the stimulus. But over the years, I found I wanted to improve. So I pushed more in training. And I found the more I pushed in training, the worse I got in competition. Mm-hmm. So it's a balancing act. And I feel that's something that athletes, sports people across the globe face. Because the better you become, the more you hone in on your skills and your weaknesses. And you push to the point where you push too close to 100% and you've got nothing left for competition yeah. on the day of the event. So I've learned now to train at like a 6 or a 7 out of 10. So I've got that reserve left for myself. And it's hard to, to manage that, but that's what I've learned how to do. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I think because like for people who aren't as powerful, who are a little bit slower, they can go and sprint five, six days a week maybe as much as yeah. they want because they're not causing as much stress to the body. But right. then the faster you get, the probably the, the less the less you need to do, probably a lot, probably a lot less, which is hard, I, I suspect, to do that. With the genetics thing, like that's what people talk about. You're saying your dad and your and your mom didn't actually play sport that much or whatever. There's probably people say you say Bolt is the fastest person in the world. There's probably some farmer in some country yeah. that never got to sprint and w- would have been faster. Same with some business person, Elon Musk. There's some person who's sweeping the streets somewhere who would have been a better business yeah. person. So yeah. Yeah. just being yeah. in the right place at the right time. It is. Um, it is. And knowing what, now having a coach or a team around you that understands your strength. Mm-hmm. My strength was always just being competitive, which I still have to this day. So I think although I have the genetics, I'm also very competitive. So that's the side I rely on massively, even to this day. Enthusiastic, I have a childlike inquisitiveness to want to learn more and, and do more and see where I can push the boundaries. So I never, although I talk about it saying I'm an old man, I never let my age limit, limit me. I'm aware I'm getting older, so I take longer to recover. But I don't let that interfere. Mm-hmm. I just think I've just got to adapt. And how do I adapt? I've got to look at my, my nutrition a little bit better nowadays because I never have. And that's just me being honest. I just never have because I've never had to. But I do now because I just feel if I'm tired from training, and if my food intake isn't sufficient and it's not of the best quality, then it's going to take me that much longer, which depletes from my physical recovery from training. Mm-hmm. So there's loads of things that I've had to learn along the way, which I never had to think about in my younger years. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of a, for, for the people then who don't know you as much, or for, for everyone, I think a nice recap, because anyone can go onto that Wikipedia page and see, whoa, actually there was, there was a lot of, um, a lot of different things over the years and a long, a long career. So, um, yeah, just maybe it can go, you can go as deep or as long as you want into kind of where you are, where you are now and some of the things in between. So I started my, I would say international career 
or my national career, uh, Jesus, I started at 14 years old. So at 14, I won what was at the time the like the British League competitions. I was I was running fairly fast within the UK. So I was always smart at school. And there was nobody in school that could beat me, but this one guy called Ken Canoe. So Ken Canoe was my my nemesis, so to speak. He always beat me in every single race. And in primary school, we raced every single day, every single day. And as a young man, the plane field probably looked like 100 metres long. But now I drive past it every now and again. It was only like 60 metres long, but it felt like a, a mile, you know? Mm-hmm. And every day me and Ken would race, and I couldn't understand how the hell he, could, he was beating me. And now Ken was about two or three years older than me, but that didn't matter to me. I was just too competitive. I didn't care. And then one day I was racing Ken, and I remember we'd run from one side of the school to the other side of the school, and they were obviously ring fenced by fences. So I noticed whenever Ken would run, he would take off quicker than me. The acceleration was quicker than mine. But I would notice as he got closer to the fence, he would slow down, obviously, to protect himself. So I sat back and thought, that's how I'm going to beat him. When he slows down, I've got to continue. But knowing this, there's a chance that the more I can continue, the more I'm going to get hurt. But I was prepared to get hurt to win. To win. So one day, I thought, right, today's the day it's going to happen. So as usual, Ken shot off like a bat out of hill, and I was just training along, head back up into the sky, just run up on wow, And I thought, when Ken starts to slow down, you carry on. You carry on, you carry on. And lo and behold, Ken slowed down, protected himself on the fence, and I just carried on running. Luckily enough, I kind of preempted that. I'm going to run towards the fence and just grab onto it. And if I fall, I fall, but the win was more important. And that was the day that A, I beat Ken, and B, I knew if you want to win, you've got to figure out ways, look for weaknesses in others, but also look for strengths in yourself. And most importantly, I just didn't give up. As much as it hurt, I didn't give up because I knew I was going to find a way. And that's what turned my career. That was a turning point in my career. So from that point, I went on. My primary school teacher encouraged me to go to the track. So I was, what, 14, 15 at the time, around that age. Within two years of starting on the track training, I became the fastest child in the world. So I want to put that into perspective. There, at the time, what, we're looking at this age, there's over 7 billion people on this planet. I was the fastest child on the planet mm-hmm. at the age of 16, 17 years old. So again, that didn't mean anything to me. So I ran a, a world junior record time of 10.06 seconds. So leading up to that, I'd won two European, I won the European juniors. I'd finished fifth or sixth in the world juniors. And I came back and won the, uh, finished second in the European juniors again. And then that year, the following year, I went on to win the, world, um, the European championships and broke the world junior record. That's when things started to change. So then in 97, I was invited to the World Championship in Seville, where I was not part of the team, but I didn't get to run. So I was part of the relay team, which was frustrating at the time, but now was a blessing because it gave me an opportunity to look at what it was like on the world stage, going up against athletes of a different caliber. Mm -hmm. So I got to experience that. And in 1998, I went on to finish second in the European Championships. Now I'm a senior against Darren Campbell. In 1999, I went on to become the third and youngest bronze medalist in the World Championships, around 997, behind the infamous Lymph- uh, the infamous uh, Maurice Green and Bruni Surin. Yeah. Yeah, those were beasts at the time. What age were you then? 19, 20, 19, 20. Okay. So I became the youngest medalist at the time. 
2000, I went to Sydney Olympic Games and finished fourth. 2001, I went to the World Championships in Canada and finished fourth or fifth, running under 10 seconds again. 2002, I became European champion again at the senior ranks. 2003, I finished out the medals in, in Paris at the World Championships. So that whole escalation of my career went from winning and losing, but having a very incremental increase to success. Now, although I was doing well in the senior ranks, I was finishing outside the medals, which was difficult for me to handle. Why was that difficult for me to handle? Because I'd always gone from winning and not losing. Now, fourth place in the championships is not bad, not a bad achievement. However, I didn't see it as a not bad achievement. I saw it as a loss. So the reason I bring this up to you and talk about it is because when, because when athletes go through a, a phase of winning or even losing, Having a strong team around you is key. And having someone you can bounce off and talk ideas and, and share your thoughts with is key. I chose to close that door off because I didn't want that. I didn't feel like I needed that. But however, sports, men and women, we do need that. Because we need to put it into perspective where we are, what our goals and ambitions were. Now, my only goal was to win. I didn't have a plan B or strategy. You know, Formula One, I have a two or three stop strategy. I didn't have any strategy. It was just win or nothing. Now, that was good because it drove me to success, but it was also bad because I didn't know how to cope with the setbacks. So anyone that's going out there and planning to do whatever you want to do in sport or life in general, have a strategy. What happens when we win? What happens when it doesn't go so well? What happens when you get injured? Have a strategy in place because it helps you put things into perspective and it makes you make, it makes you, enables you to put in place small achievable goals that you know, you can work with and, 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 and that are realistic too. So from that point on, poor decisions were made on my behalf. And I say poor decisions were made because I felt that, have any of you seen The Matrix? I'm asking you this question. So most of you would know if you watched The Matrix, the very, very, very first one, when Morpheus sat in front of Neo and offered him an opportunity to get out of the rabbit hole. Now there was two pills, a red and a blue one. Correct me if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Neo took the red pill. He took the red pill. Now, the red pill in my situation was given an opportunity to go from number five in the world to number one in the world. Now, if I had goals, I wouldn't have made that decision I made. By not having goals, I left myself open to all opportunities. So by having goals, you narrow down what you want to do and you focus and it eliminates any other distractions. My decision to take the red pool and take performance enhancers tracked me down a road that wasn't my goal. It was somebody else's goal. I was living another person's dream. Mm-hmm. Now, by that, my goals and ambitions of what to be the best in the world just got chucked out the window and it involved me taking performance enhancers that was costly to my career. Costly in the sense that it took 10 years out of my career just by one decision. And it's just, that poor decision was stemmed from the fact that I wasn't open to constructive criticism from my earlier in my career. So I illustrate this to you guys because I'm not the only person this will happen to. It happens across the board, whether it's in or outside of sport. So I urge you guys to have a team around you that will help make, help you make smart decisions and, and look at the highs and lows of decisions that you may make. So as a consequence of that, I went on to take performance enhancers for a period of 18 months. Although it made me financially great, put me in a great financial position, it put me on a global scale. 
all these things I've done while I was on, I would have done anyway. I just want the shortcut. But one thing I've learned in life, the shortcut gets you to success quickly. But the road to highs and lows of progression and learning and building a team is missed. And those are the things that build you and give you the strength to cope outside of sport. Because sport only lasts for so long. And there's always a life after sport. And more importantly, sport builds a person that can send the right message, be the right role, role model, and carry the right philosophy outside of sport. I chose to bypass that and want to get there quicker than anybody else. And it was costly. So as a result of that, I got suspended for two, two years. But like I've done a pod- podcast yesterday, and my fall from grace was necessary. I openly admit that it was necessary. I'm, I'm glad it happened. Because if I hadn't, my life could have been put in jeopardy. I don't know what I was doing, what I was, you know, I don't know what I was taking, but I didn't know the long-term effects. So I'm glad it's happened to me because now it's put me in a position to talk about it. Because there may be sportsmen and women that made me thinking about doing this. It goes through your head, it does. Because you can see, we may have an idea that other people are doing this, but we don't know for certain. I believe that's what other people were doing and I believe this was going to take me to where I wanted to go. Or was I wrong? You know, because I, I came off my nice path that I was going through, was making steady progress and chose to come off the M25 too soon and got stuck in traffic for, for, for years. But it was too late to reverse back. So as a result, I got suspended. I had to work my ass off to get myself back. But that road back involved me come to terms with that was my fault and not anybody else's. So whatever actions you make, there's always going to be a consequence to it, whether good or bad. And you're not always prepared for it, but whatever actions you take, you've got to just face the music and dance, so to speak. And that's what I had to do. So I spent a long time building relationships, doing the right things to, A, become a better person, send the right message, look at what other avenues can be viewed to, to, to uh, better improve performance in the right way, watching your podcasts, watching your videos. I understand there's another way. There always is another way. But that's now because I'm open to looking at things in a, in a, in a, in a more positive manner than I did before. So that's yeah. where things were. And this is the situation I'm in now. I'm back in the school, enjoying it, loving it, studying it. And, you know, um, like I said, I'm grateful for what I went through because it's put me in a unique position that, that I can talk about it. Yeah. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, but very few of them have been in the public eye in that much. And yeah, made, made mistakes, done, made stupid decisions, like probably yeah. most people have, but yeah. it's not plastered all over the front page then. And you're not, you're not kind of, you're not just kind of labeled with that. And then off you go. Everyone has, people have just kind of, viewed your character in a certain way. And I, I suspect it's been a hard road to come, to come back from that. Did it take you a while to kind of own that or like over those, over those few years, how did you actually deal with that? The first point of call was to come to terms with what I did. Naturally, whenever like I sit with my kids all the time, I've got three children. My oldest is Sky. My first son is Sky. He's 16. He's about my height and his voice is deeper than mine, which is crazy. <laughs> 16. Is he, is he fast? Yeah, he's fast. 
Yeah. And then my middle one, Rocco Star, my middle son, he's 13. Again, he just absolutely takes the mickey out of me all the time. Like, Dad, you took drugs. What are you doing that for? So he actually brings me right back down to planet Earth all the time. But I like his sense of humor. So he's 13. He's about, yeah, yay high to me. And then my daughter, Phoenix Lee, um, she's 10. Yeah, so they, they have changed my life. But because of them, by me being honest, it's given me a chance to talk to them about problems and the things I've gone through. So dealing with it wasn't easy. So I had to come to terms with it. It wasn't anybody else's fault. Like when I say to my kids, what have you done wrong? Like, it wasn't my fault. I spent a long time saying it wasn't my fault. I chose to blame it on the person who offered me this opportunity or offered, put his hand up with this, you know, this, this, whatever you want to call it. So I spent a long time blaming other people. Blaming other people, but they never made the decision. It was me. So every time I pointed the finger at somebody saying it was your fault, I've been encouraged to look back at the other three fingers that are pointing back at me. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah? yeah? So then when I was encouraged to look at that, stop pointing because you've got three fingers looking at you, pointing back at you. That's you're accountable for. What have you done? How are you going to fix it? And where do we start? You know, those three little analogies always change, but you're always accountable for your own actions. So once I got my head around that, then I thought, okay, this was my fault. What am I going to do about it now, Dwayne? So it took a lot of talking to myself and looking in the mirror and not liking the person I was seeing. So if I didn't like what I saw, then Jesus, what do other people think? And that's one thing I realized a lot of us in society don't want to face. We don't want to look in that mirror. We don't want to look in the mirror because we're not going to like what we see. But that's where change comes. So once I'd done that, and I spent a long time avoiding mirrors, trust me, I did. I spent a lot, long time. I started to find that the conversations I was having with people were highlighting to me my flaws. So I had to pick those up and tidy them up. Stop making excuses. Start to build relationships with the establishment and the authorities, so to speak. For once in my life, I chose to be honest. Because I've lied all my life. We all do. We all do. So I tried to be honest, what did it help my situation was I wrote a book, which I found at the time was, at the time, I'm not saying it was the right thing to do, but at the time it was the best thing to do, purely because it gave me my chance to get everything off my chest, because I wasn't the best at handling the media. I didn't know how to handle the media. So I thought, right, let me just put it on paper. So I wrote a book called Race Against Me, which gave me, again, that chance to just offload, put everything in writing and do that. Off the back of that book, I then went on to an interview and told the truth about what I did. Now, at the time, naive, young, unsure of the impact of my, my actions, I told the truth, which didn't help the sport. I thought it was, but it didn't help the sport. It put the sport in a bad light. Now, that should have been dealt with better because the door, sport opened the doors to me, gave me an opportunity to showcase myself. I then took from the sport I took that and ran with it. But I took too much. I took too much soil. I took too much fruit. I took too much money. I took too much property. I took all the ingredients that make this economy of the earth grow. I took it and didn't give back. I just took it and ran. So by being honest and just coming back, I thought I have to put back into the sport, but I was doing it the wrong way. So I had to learn a valuable lesson and put back in the right way. You know, if I had chosen to walk away, I would have just taken and not 
put back in. So I'm glad I made certain decisions to be honest and come back into the sport and provide myself as a platform to help. Mm-hmm. It's not going to please all. It's not. I get that. But there are those, some individuals who can take what I'm saying that aren't in sport, but can take this from life. Like there is life after mistakes, but it's going to take for you to be accountable for your actions. Yeah. You know, so that's what I did. And, you know, I've gradually worked my way back up to the top, got myself competed again, spoke a lot, a lot about it a lot more. Spoke in schools, spoke in universities, spoke in corporate environments, which I still do to this day. And not only is it A, therapy for me, but B, it gives me a chance to just express how I feel and give people the chance to be like, okay, I'm feeling that too. How do you get through it? How I got through it is by having a team around me, being honest and having goals. I've said this from the steps to the start. You've got to have a goal. And it may take 20 years, but once you achieve it, it's, it shows you have the tenacity and the resilience to walk, get knocked down, walk, get knocked down. But every time you're walking, you're a little bit further than you were yesterday. You know, so those, that's what I did. I spent a long time doing that and I still do it to this day. And here I am in front of you now. Was your goal then, so to, like, once you did kind of come to terms with it, was to get back into the sport, number one, and to, like, kind of rehabilitate your image a little bit and try and... Yeah, just, yeah, rehabilitate your image. You kept training through that time. I think you were, you tried out a couple of different sports in that time as well. <laughs> um, it must have been, it must have been fair hard to, to keep going when there's no real, like, defined endpoint inside here. Yeah, A, I wanted to get back into the sport. I just didn't know how. But I loved it so much. This And it's all I've known. I haven't known anything else. So me going out and having a run or going to the gym or teaching classes or coaching. That's what I'm, apart from that's what I'm engineered to do. Some people have a skill they put on this earth to do. They're Einstein, you know, people have a, a gift. Tiger Woods has a gift to swing a club and hit golf balls. Roger Federer, people have gifts. You know, Dino Asperger, they have gifts to do certain things. Obviously later on in life, they'll deteriorate and move on. But I have a gift for this, so... If that wasn't a part of my life, I don't know what else to do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what else to do. Mm. I wasn't the best in school, so my education was poor at the time. So this was my way of learning. How do I learn from this? Because when times get hard and I wake up in the morning, I say, I don't want to do this. If I don't do it, I don't improve. I don't learn. I don't understand. I don't know what course corrections to make. You learn by doing, especially when it gets hard. You get up and you carry on. Mm. Because like I said earlier, you carry on, you're one step further than you were yesterday. So I didn't know what else to do. So I thought, right, I need to get back into sport, but how? So I returned. I got suspension in 2003 for two years. And I was able to come back in 2006, which I did. So upon coming back in 2006, I was offered a lifeline to go and train with Usain Bolt. So this is before the great Usain Bolt emerged. So I was with him for a little, little under a year. So I was out there with him training, so that was great. So it took me away from home, eliminated any distractions. So I was just able to train with Usain for, like I said, almost about a year. So that went really, really well. So I came back into the sport. Things were a little frosty and hostile. That's to be expected. Um, so I did that and I just didn't, I couldn't see a light at the end of the tunnel there. So I left for a little while. I realised that wasn't the way to change my image. 
yes, people know I can run fast, but I've left too many open wounds in the sport. So I need to address that first. So I thought, come back, look at your blueprint again, what needs to be addressed. I'm trying to jump straight back to the top, which I did, but there's still planting and growing and weeding of the this soil underneath that was still unsturdy. My foundations of respect were still tarnished. Mm-hmm. You know, so I came back out, went and played NFL for a year. Yeah, for the Hamburg Sea Devils. It was a great time, but I can't take the hits. So I bailed out of that real quick. <laughs> were, were you good? No. I got into the team because of my speed. So whenever there was a Hail Mary, that was me all day long. <laughs> now there's a difference in NFL UK at the time. So it's, it's elevated since then. But at the time, I could run a straight line and it was pretty, it was pretty easy. And my playbook was probably about this big. We, we have a playbook. So it was, a, it was a handful of routes that I had to learn. I thought, oh, okay, I can kind of get that. So when I got to NFL Europe, my playbook went from this size <laughs> to something like that. Yeah. And I'm not grown up on NFL. I just thought, okay, I've got a bit of speed. Many have done it in the past. Sure, I can do that. But learning to run routes, change routes, read the defense, and then remember your playbook, nah. Mm-hmm. There was no chance. So then I was running scared all the time because I was making a decision whether I catch the ball or get hit. And nine out of ten times I got hit and knocked out and concussed twice. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what's easier? Running in a straight line for 10 seconds, nine seconds, or the potential risk of getting my head knocked off. And I thought, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. So I had a great time. NFL Hamburg Sea Devils were awesome. We went on to win the World Bowl, which is probably like the equivalent of their Super Bowl. So I've got my little Super my World Bowl ring. So I've got that I forever cherish. And it was a great experience with the team. So I came back in 2007. Did I come back in 07? I think I did. And I had another season. Wasn't the greatest. I still hadn't dealt with the real issues. So I think I had a small season there. I came back out, I think. Then I had another season away from sport where I played rugby with the Hamburgs, with the Castleford Tigers. So I played rugby for a short period of time. And that came about by Martin of Fire, a colleague of mine, put me in touch with Martin of Fire, one of rugby's legends. And we sat down and spoke, and he said, go up to, Ham- um, to Castleford and have a bit of a ball there. So I did. had a great time. I struggled to how they did it at the time. So we're talking a long time ago, but we would finish training and then go to the pub and drink beer. And that was the tradition of rugby at the time. I'm not sure if it still is, but I struggled to get up more in the morning, have my breakfast, play rugby, then go to the pub and drink three or four pints. I was so drunk. By 12 o'clock, I was, I can't even swear, but I was so drunk. <laughs> I can't believe it. But again, great experiences. And it just gave me, it's off my eyes to team morale, team effort, team support which I had around me, but I didn't embrace it. Mm-hmm. And what better person would I have become? What pers- better person could we become if we involved ourselves in a team? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's made such a difference. That experience made such a difference. So I came back to the sport again of athletics, 2008-2009 season, and I thought, right, I need a team around me. That's got my back. Because when you're an elite sportsman, people cling on to when you 
cling on to you when you were good because the work's easy. Yeah. You're making their job easy. But it's when you're down, you realise who your friends are yeah. and who's in for you and who's not. So I've got a good team around me, um, which I still have to this day. And from it, the road to getting me back was starting to, 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 uh, to bear fruit. So we worked in schools. We done a lot of apologising. You know, we mended the ground as best as we could. We learned to deal with the media. We learned to deal with my public image. We learned to deal with how I looked on the surface. We learned to deal with what's going on internally. Now, on the surface, everything was smiley and hunky-dory. We were building all the foundation, but there were still so many triggers inside. A, from childhood, B, from the suspension, and B, all the booze and getting back that was still running wild inside me. Too many open doors, too many open loops were still available. So a psychologist was involved, got my head back into the right place. My wife was very supportive of what I was doing. My kids, you know, the team around me helped build me back again. So what we done, we didn't have any leaks occurring. So I had a, I had Dr. Strange's on each side of me, front, back, left, right, keeping everything contained. <laughs> you know, so I had everything kind of molding and no leaks happening anywhere. So that worked really, really well. And then, yeah, and then I was building myself back up again and, you know, just trying to do things in the right way and taking the long road to success rather than the quick road. And from that, again, you just build character. There wasn't there was no quick road then because I suppose it was either take the long road or or get out of here. Pretty much. And I didn't want to stop because running is what I enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's what I love. I love competing. I love the cheers of the crowd. I love entertaining the crowd. And you've got to put that first. You've got to know what you're here for. Yeah. You've got to know why you're here. Why are you here? Are you here for Instagram likes? Are you here for Know why you're here. Yeah. What is your why? My why is I like to entertain. I like to perform. I want to show that no matter what happens in life, you can get back up. And if you believe it enough, then it's, it's, it's achievable. Again, it may take 20 years, but be an example of perseverance. Yeah, you know? I, like that. I love that. Even, even, even I've fall, fallen into that trap, even with something as small as that Instagram type of thing where I have gone through a few months at a time where obviously it's a big part of our business, but like a few months at a time where it feels like a chore and I'm just trying yeah. to, oh, I need to put up content and stuff like that. And then I snap myself out of it a little bit or someone says something, I'm actually like, no, hang on. If I just view this as I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to put up stuff that help people. And then anything that comes back to me, comes back to me. It's going to happen anyway, if the content yeah. is good. So yeah. that when when people talk to me about creating content and all this stuff, I'm like, just just go out, put put out value every day, promise yeah. to help people, and you'll get yeah. back whatever you need to get back. 100%. You know, hundred And then on the yeah. on, on the team stuff, Dwayne, the I grew up in team sports all my life. Like that's all that's all I did. And always when I saw like the there's not a massive track and field kind of scene in Ireland. It's getting bigger now, but like you'd see track and field athletes and it always looks so lonely to me. I was, I was yeah. so yeah. just the exact opposite of what I'm used to. And then I get a chance now to work with like different athletes and some of them are in individual sports. And you see, you see the media sometimes giving flack for like, okay, this, this person has like an entourage around them. And I, I think they don't actually understand that a lot of that is them just trying to have enough people around them that when the energy is low, someone else can pick it up a little bit or, you know, a fighter going into a camp or something like that. 
Ido Portal was with Conor, Conor McGregor a few years ago and he was doing like yeah. funny types of training and people are saying, yeah. no, that's not going to help him win a fight. Maybe not, but maybe when he's in a six or eight week camp and somebody. it's just yeah. something to freshen yeah. it up and something yeah. different, you know? So yeah. I think the smartest athletes, the best athletes understand how important that is. Yeah, 100%. So how did you get into, what was your background in sport? Where have you come from? Uh, Gaelic football and hurling, so two Irish sports. So that's all I did all my life. I played I played football, which is soccer, like we would call it. Uh, I played rugby, got and cost loads of times. And um, yeah, just was obsessed with that all my life was... Had to work pretty hard, like to 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 get to get better. Got a lot better actually when I hit the gym. The gym helped me a lot, and I started to develop. I was a I was a late bloomer. Like I started to get a lot better. I think my trajectory was actually, I in a, in about a three year period between about twenty one and twenty four, maybe or twenty and twenty three. I improved much more than most people that I've met. But I was coming from a lower base. But then I kept getting injured, and that like. That I felt like that just com- completely derailed my career, whatever my career was going to be. And I still have some regrets over that now because I feel like it could have been, it could have been, it could have been better. And if I knew now what I, what I, if I knew yeah. then what I know now, but like yeah. that, like you, I suppose I wouldn't be the person I am now. I wouldn't be helping all these people if right. everything just went smoothly for me. Right. So when you say you was coming from a lower base, elaborate on that bit for me. So what's that mean? Genetics or I don't know, but like genetics is a funny one because like my brother then is well, it can still be genetics, but like he's one of the he's been one of the better athletes in in the Gaelic football scene, even in Ireland. Even though our team wasn't our county team wasn't amazing, he would be able to mix it with most other athletes in Ireland, no problem. And mm-hmm. I I just wasn't as good. But then when I hit the weight room and stuff, I actually started to get a lot faster, which surprised me. And yeah, I was just not as dedicated as I should have been through my, I didn't, I didn't, I, I played too many sports probably through like the ages of 14 to 18. And mm-hmm. I didn't really develop like the core, the key skills in the sport that I ended up playing, which was Gaelic football. So I tried to, I had to kind of chase them back and get them and work really, really hard on my skills. Um, I, like my ball handling was good, but my kicking and stuff was poor. I could only really kick off one leg. And then by the end of it, I could kick very, very well, as accurately as probably most other people um, off two feet. And um, yeah, just injuries derailed me. So I, I, that's the funny thing, because my brother was so talented um, athletically and I and I wasn't. So that I think that just happens. There's sometimes there's like a, a good kid and then the fat kid or something. I wasn't a fat kid, but I wasn't a good kid either, you know. <laughs> So what brought on the injuries? Was it just overuse, too, trying to do too much? Um, probably, yeah, probably a mix of things. There was one one unlucky one, which was, uh, well, maybe not that unlucky, but I was over in the States and I fell off a, a scooter, a moped, and I, I bust up my knee and I went back and played sport pretty much straight away. And the wound was still like it would open up in a lot of the games. And I had developed a really bad patellar tendinopathy after that, uh, my knee. And that seemed to change all my gait, my biomechanics. Everything started to change because I was kind of compensating away from that injury. And then it just just compounded for years and years and years for there. Achilles, knees, groins, the odd hamstring, stuff like that. And I just ended up moving, moving to Australia because I didn't want to play. I could not play sport in Ireland while I was here. 
be like, yeah. I, I'd say, okay, I need to take a month off to rehab this injury. And then like four days later, I'm playing the game and uh, get yeah. injured again, which is the exact opposite thing than what I'll tell people to do now. But uh, yeah, I just moved. I had to move away. I had to move country to stop playing, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what got you into the work you're in now? That. Okay. I, tried to, I tried to fix, kind of, quote unquote, fix myself. And then other people started to like, see what I was doing or I'd had a few friends and they were like, that actually worked. So it uh, kind of just spiraled from there, just sharing a few bits on Instagram and helping people. And then I think people seems to, seems to work pretty well for people. So yeah, just keep, keep going in that direction. Good. So I've got a couple of questions. So this is supposed to be me asking you questions. I'm getting to know a little bit about you. So this is my Wikipedia on you now. So. With regards to athletes, or sportsmen and women in general, would you recommend doing an athlete screening? Because typically I get a lot of athletes that come to do sessions and I do the basic, just looking at their mechanics and seeing how they move. Um, and then I tend to find that a lot of them suffer with just lower back issues, tight hamstrings, glutes. And these are kids, like I'm talking from, geez, seven years old, eight years old. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess a lot of it stems from the way they are on the computers, their devices, they it, it, it develops poor posture. So what would you suggest would be a good way of kind of screening an athlete? And what would you look for? I think you're screening them all the time when you're looking at, especially kids, when you're looking at moving, I probably wouldn't have a, a, maybe a too much of a defined screen. You'll see, you'll see, especially someone like you who's looked at like running all your lives and stuff like that all your life. You're going to see the kid who moves pretty well and the kid who doesn't. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think the, the 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 fancy answer here will be all of these screens, but the honest answer is you just kind of know when you look at them. You can see them walking, you can see them running, you Correct. can see them jumping, you can see them skipping, you can see them just doing a squat. Those are your screens. And for kids, especially, because even if you did screen them, what are the answers to these issues? The answers are probably just exposing them to all of these movements on a consistent basis, like just different movements, skips and bounds and, and whatever types of movements. And they're going to get better very, very quickly. So the answer for me is, even if I screen them, if they have tight glutes, if they have tight hips, I'd still be doing similar things with all of them because they're all just going to get, you know? So, yeah. So I think that's not a fancy answer, but it's probably yeah. the, the right one. Yeah, I'm just asking a question because I'm curious. So, again, uh, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking. 32. No, not too. Okay, I'm 44. So, we grew up being outside, Jesus, six, seven hours a day during the summer holidays, riding bikes, climbing trees, falling off a building, you know, the stuff. Yeah. Knocking our knees and getting up and cracking on. Now, this generation doesn't seem to do that. So, when we introduce movements to them, they're obviously their sport specific movements. Mm-hmm. But I also have an inkling of trying to get them to do things like climbing up poles, just get them a little bit more robust so they've got a little bit more muscle recruitment going on and not just ring-fencing them to just run in a straight line. So even though we teach sprints, we work on agility as well, range of movement, getting them move left to right, turning, twisting, falling down, getting up. Things that we did, which made us a little bit more robust. But I find that this generation is not are not sold. So I encourage that. Um, would you necessarily say that's a good or a bad thing? Yeah, definitely a good thing. As much as you can expose them to, to, and even like when you think about them, even them playing now, 
everything is on maybe a flat surface. There's no yeah. different surfaces and stuff like that. Their feet aren't being developed in, in those type of ways. So um, I, I would say crawling, lunging, jumping, skipping, like climbing, literally every rolling. I've, I've done a little bit of gymnastics, coaching, stuff like that. Like just, yeah, just any, anything you can think of. Um, just play is, is the answer really what you would have gotten from play. I actually developed, I, I, I did, um, a few years back, I think I have videos of this, uh, uh, youth athletic development kind of thing that I did for a couple of hurling clubs here in, uh, in Ireland. And I think we had four parts now. I don't want to get it wrong, but one part was like a bit, a little bit of strength work. And it was some kind of just, just kind of squats and lunges and a few different funny positions to, to strengthen without, without weights or anything like that. Uh, one part was like dynamic mobility type of work. So it doesn't feel like they're just sitting there stretching. They're kind of actually moving around. And then one part is like locomotion type of drills. So like crawls and different walks and all that stuff. So I can send you, um, I can send you those videos if you want. And then the other part was like just sprinting and stuff, but I I think you might have that part covered. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll send you, I'll send you those videos. And if anyone else is listening, um, yeah, we also. Uh, I can send. I can send them to the people. Actually, everyone, don't DM me. Maybe find yeah, a way to message me that isn't on Instagram, and I'll send it to you. Yeah, awesome. So, I'll ask you. You asked me this, and I'll ask you the same. Um, where do you think sport is heading? Is it going in a good direction, or is it still like, under development? In what way? In, in what way? Are we learning more biomechanically? Or is the is the involvement of science helping? Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. Now. It's a great question. Um, I think I think we are. I think we're getting there. The, the 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 problem is like, what do you do with the information? So like, I know some good SSE coaches who have worked with some of the top teams in the world in like Premier League and international rugby, all this stuff. There's so much data that they're getting, but then what, what do you actually do with it? A lot of it comes back to the basics, which is like, okay, someone, someone isn't feeling as good as they should. Right. Did you sleep? Okay. Are you eating relatively well? And are you not training too much? Like, are you, are you training enough? Like that's what it, that's what it comes back to. Biomechanically, there's lots of different coaches with lots of different ideas about how we should actually be sprinting. But I think it comes back to our sprint or doing any of these things everyone's structure is different. Like if you, if you go back to, if you go back to, um, some of the, some of the sprinters back, maybe even you versus maybe someone like Marcel Jacobs, like your structure looks quite different. Your style looks quite different. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's hard to say that you should be, you, you both of you should be actually training or not training, but like running in the same way. So we can, we can analyze people, but I, I always come back to execution around what actually are, is that person doing and how can I nudge him forward? And that, that execution in the end looks different for everyone. So mm. more data is good, but like we, we, we don't want to try and turn everyone into robots where everyone is yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen an influx, a change. Obviously there's more videos out there on social media. Everyone's got a right way. It's never a wrong way. We've always got a right way to do things. Yeah. But, We've got to be careful not to get caught into what works for myself or Marcel Jacobs or Dina Rasha Smith or Shelly Ann Fraser Price. That's what works for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a coach, we've got to be able to be educated enough. So when our athletes do come to us and say, 
why are athletes doing this? We've got to be knowledgeable enough to say that's what works for them and these are the reasons why and this is where we are and these are the reasons why we're going to do this for you. So we're very visually um, distracted and we spend very little time focusing on ourselves because mm-hmm. everything else that everyone else is doing looks great. But you have to be mindful that what you're seeing is just the end article or what people want you to believe is the end article. But you never see all the hard work, yeah. the pain and the frustration and disappointment. Yeah. So I like where the sport is heading because we've got better spikes, we've got better track surfaces, we've got a better tyres for Formula 1, we've got a better equipment on the global scale for all sports. There's even better ways of educating ourselves. But all it boils down to is what works for you. And that's where the real magic comes because then once you can figure out what works for you, then you could be, then you're amazing. Yeah. You know, and that's the way the power lies. So, yeah. you know, I find all this stuff really interesting. And once you can get an athlete who's paying attention to detail on themselves, then you know you've really got someone. Yeah. What, um, what works for you then? Can you talk us through? I know you don't have much time now, but um, yeah. like, okay, so you're setting up for... 100 meters against some of the best sprinters in the world. Maybe it's changed now versus where you were back in the day or whatever. I don't know. But like, talk us through that from setting up in the blocks to the different phases. What's what's going through your mind? Or is there anything going through your mind? I've always been one to train how I want to compete. Now, this is me younger, Dwayne, because I didn't have any other responsibilities. I could just stay in character for a lot longer and what i mean by staying in character is i can stay in competition mode all day long <laughs> so if i get annoyed i can stay annoyed in my house and not interfere with the kids or the wife whereas i can't carry that dr jekyll mr hyde scenario. i can't have that now i can have that when i'm on the track i can stay mr hyde but when i come and i've got to meet dr jekyll and be calm because i've had that episode when i switched to boost banner and I bring it in the house and it's not nice. Mm-hmm. I'm not physical, but I'm very wired. My, te- my, my fuse for my temper is real short. Yeah. And you find that in very explosive sportsmen and women. Yeah. Our tempers are real short. Because we're always on edge. Yeah. So Dwayne of old, literally, I'll train the way I want to compete. So my, there's no change in character. I don't have to change. I stay here. So how I train... I get to the event, I get to the warm-up track, I get to the competition, I get on the line, I don't change. So my aura is always oozing. I carry that everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was younger, I could do that. Nowadays, I can't stay in character that long. It just wears the hell out of me. And to be fair, I like to laugh a little, joke a little, switch on when I need to, switch off. But back in the day, I would, again, get up... Um, I would have to have a little shakeout and a routine in the morning because my adrenaline spike is so high, I can't contain that. So I'd have to get out and move around, do a little few little runs, run it off, just to tame him. There's Dwayne, relax, and there's another Dwayne inside here, (laughs) my alter ego, who's always raging to go. It's like uh, the film uh, Planet of the Apes when Caesar lets the big gorilla out the cage <laughs> he's been locked up for a long yeah. period of time and he's not locked up for a long period of time but he doesn't like to be restrained from what he wants to do mm-hmm. when I let him out that's when 
beast does what he does on the 100 meter start line. Hence why I look so intimidating. But I'll elaborate on that a little bit more. So, on the moments leading up to the competition, we have what's called obviously the warm up track, and everyone's parading and warming up and secretly eyeballing each other because we're looking for signs of weakness. Yeah. Why are we looking for signs of weakness? Because we are confident. But the more we're out there, the more we're observing, our energy levels, our confidence is dipping. Yeah. So we're looking for signs of weakness in others. So we can draw from that, which gives us that little boost. Yeah. It happens. And this is what we don't talk about, but it's what happens. So we're all doing a bit where, like, gazelles prancing higher than all the other gazelles, looking how I, look how good I am. So it's a very, it's psychological warfare up here. So we're looking, we're letting everyone else know how good we look, how relaxed we are our swag, the women do it too, you know? But deep down, we're crapping ourselves. We just don't show it very well. Yeah. So once we get out from the warm-up, warm-ups can typically take, Jesus, hour, hour and a half, two hours, depending on how long it takes you to warm up. So we typically get the track early because we want to find our space. We want to orientate ourselves around the track. We want to know where the toilets are. We want to know where we're going to warm up. We want to know where other our opponents are sitting. So we're just in enough eyeball or something we want to stay away from it and not get distracted. If you're overly confident, you stay where everyone can see you. If you're kind of reserved, you kind of park yourself away. You blip in, you come out. You want to make sure you're near your medical team. You want to make sure you're near somebody who can kind of just say, I need something. Some athletes do not need anything on the day. They're self-sufficient. Some of them are reliant on people and things. I've learned to be reliant on nothing. No headphones, no tape measures to measure my blocks, no watch, no no, no nothing. Even though I have it on, but I'm not reliant on it. Because with experience, I've been in so many races where I've lost tape measures, I've lost my watches, I've lost jewellery, and it throws you off. So I've learned to just not be reliant on anything. I don't have any mantras, I don't do any of that. So I'll go in there just the way I came into this world, just empty, plain. I just rely on however my body reacts in the moment. I live in the moment. I try not to preempt it. If I, if I struggle, I'll get my diary and I'll write on it, uh, draw a line in the middle and I'll write how I want my day to go. These are my goals for the day. And I'll, on the other side, I'll write what I want to avoid. I want to avoid being, uh, I want to, put all my equipment away. I want to make sure I eat early, eat on time. And on this side, this is the side I'll keep carrying with me. And on it, it'll have anything from the same. I just want to make sure I'm relaxed and calm on the day. Switch on when I need to. A few little points, and I'll occasionally look at it as a reference. Once you're off the track, you go into what's called the call room. The call room is where all the athletes then walk away. And we're in a, a room. It could be anywhere from like a, a massive office space to a room that's no bigger than 10 by 10, 10 meters long, 10 meters wide. It could be as small as that. And you're in there with five or six officials. You know, the officials are the ones that check your spikes, they check your big numbers, they check that your equipments, your, your team oh, logo, your sponsor logo is at the right size. Mm -hmm. They do all these checks. And you can be in that call room for anywhere from 10 to 45 minutes to an hour before you run. Mm -hmm. Now, in the call room, this is where many races are won and lost. Because out in the crowd, you can hide. But when you're in a room of other competitors who you're going to be competing against, people crack. 
They do. They crack. Are you looking at each other? Yeah, they're looking at each other. So everyone's in the room. So the men, back in the day when I was racing against the Maurice Greens and the Limpa Christie's, those beasts, they will, they will take your soul away. Mm-hmm. Literally suck your soul away. And if you're not a stronger character as them, you're done. Your race is done. Mm-hmm. Whereas this generation, everyone's laughing, drunk, and spotted and high-fiving and taking selfies. It's, it's a little bit more relaxed. So in that cool room, races are won and lost simply by just allowing somebody else's thoughts that are circulating. It doesn't necessarily have to be a look. If that aura is saying, I'm going to tear you lot up, and you suck into that aura, you're done. I love it. Fucking love it. Yeah, you're done. Your race is done. And I've been down that road many a times, and my race has been done. So I've learned now. I'm like, I know your trick. Kim Collins used to do that to me. We'll be cool. We've we'll been knowing each other for so many years. We'll talk on the track, blah, blah, blah. And Kim will get me in the call. I'm like, yo, come here. What's going on today? And he'll talk me there for about 10 minutes. By the time I'm done, I'm freaking like, oh my God. <laughs> and then Kim will go on a win. So I thought, you sucker. I know exactly what you're doing. You just talked me out of my down race. So we'll laugh afterwards. So I said, all right, cool. So I've learned now. When Kim used to come up to me and talk, I'm like, Kim, loud me, man. You're just trying to suck my energy. He's like, yeah, you sussed me. You sussed me. <laughs> <laughs> So then after the, after the cool room, depending on how long you've been in there, you've got to find a way to keep yourself calm. You've got to keep your composure. You've still got to keep fairly warm. Now, the tendency in the cool room, what young athletes do, they go and sit down. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a mistake. You sit down to put your spikes on, but you keep moving. Keep your energy levels high. Keep here, because this, this, this starts to deplete. Your focus starts to deplete. So again, you can be in, a, in that cool room anywhere from 10 to half an hour to even 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the schedule. Things get delayed, stuff like that. Then you'll go out to the track and that track walk can be, again, 10 minutes sometimes. It depends on where the stadium and the room is located. So you walk to the track, parading your stuff, cameras are on you. Then you start to hear the roar of the crowd as you enter the stadium. Now, I remember when I first started, an athlete said to me, when you walk into the stadium, look up and look back down. And I don't understand why. Because when you look up, you're going to feel like an ant because the stadium, the, 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 the design of the stadium is like a fishbowl. And when you look up and you can see crowds up in the horizon, like they're in the sky, you feel insignificant in comparison. Mm. And if you're not used to that, many athletes have got into that stadium and vomited on the floor because they can't, they're overwhelmed by the noise. Yeah. The sheer noise of the stadium and the heat in the area is immense. So if you're in a hot country, it's even worse because you've got thousands of people there. You've got hundreds of fishermen beside you. You've got the cameras in front of you. You've got the intensity of your own expectation in your mind. And you've got athletes next to you who just want to tear you apart. When you, so when, when you talk, sorry, I have one quick question. When, you, when you're talking about this laying out all this, which I want you to keep going, this is amazing. Is there one, one race or one place in your mind that you're kinda, you would kind of have to think about? Or that stands out? Seville, Seville 1999 with Maurice Green. Yeah. I was a new kid on the block at the time. So I was in that cool room and Maurice Green would be pacing up and down, looking at me. And I was a new kid. And he came up to me like this, stood in my face. And I thought, why is he doing that? And he walked off. You know what I did? I picked up my chair and walked back to the other part of the room because I was so scared. Walked back. So by the time we got out of the cool room, I was just like, oh my God, shaking like a leaf. I then got out to the track. And I believe I was in lane four, four or five. Maurice Green put his bag in my lane. 
and dumped it there and went and ran off, done his strides. Now, me now, if he'd done that now, I would have kicked that bag so far, mate. I would have got a juggling world record. But I politely picked his bag up and put it back in his lane and carried on and proceeded with my, my warm-up. Now, again, I didn't get it at the time, but now I get it. It was all scare tactics to try and distract me. And he did that because that was done to him. And you only do that when you're, you're feeling compromised. Your confidence is being shot by somebody else. So I thought, huh, I know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, I kept my cool and I went on and got a bronze medal. So I talk like this because I, I lived it. So when you see that happen in all walks of life, whether it's in business or sport, you're just being, you're being attacked because that person who's attacking you feels intimidated by you. That means you've done something good. Yeah. See it as that. You just got to, now don't get me wrong, it doesn't always work because sometimes you will lose, but you've got to go from the loss in order to learn how to win. So I always encourage loss because you learn more from losing than you do by winning. Because you learn from it. You don't learn, learn from winning, just winning, winning, which I did. I came from just winning, winning. But when I lost, I didn't know how to handle it. So I deliberately put athletes with faster people so they know what it's like to get their ass beat. So then when they come back, I'm like, oh, crap, I'm no good. I'm like, hold on a minute. Let's look at all the positives here. They're like, what positives? A, you're younger. B, this guy's more experienced. He or she's more experienced. And you still stepped up to the line and still did it. Now we're one step further than we were two minutes ago. And you're going to do it again, and you're going to do it again, and you're going to do it again. And that's how you build character. You know, so that's how I learn. And that's how a lot of these athletes learn. You can't make it easy for them. Because you're not only teaching them how to build in sport, you're teaching them about life as well. That's what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then you're, you're on the blocks. Yeah. So once, you're, yeah, once you, you do your little run, you set your blocks up, you make sure everything's correct, right, just as, as best as it can be. Not everything's going to be perfect. You're never, ever perfect. It's perfect in your vision, but your vision never shows all the distractions. So when you get out there, it's never perfect. Your blocks are always slightly off. The temperature is a bit too much. It's either too hot or too cold. Your traction doesn't fit right. Your pins are like, mm. so it's never, ever perfect. But you've, you've got to be like, all right, cool. This is where I'm at today. You've got to live where your feet are. Live where your feet are. And this is where I've got today. The hard part is not to change your mind. Because this maze up here will start to say things to you. You'll start having a conversation in here. I don't conversate with myself anymore up here. When you're young and you're ambitious, you're a child, you don't talk to yourself. You don't be like, oh, I can't lose today. You're like, let me just go. You go. I don't conversate with myself anymore. So when thoughts come in, I let it float right through. Now, when people say I'm on that start line and I look intimidating, yes, I am intimidating. And I love that because that scares them. Mm-hmm. But what I am doing, while I stare, my stare is so long and focused. That line is my lane. That lane is mine and mine only. And when I'm looking down like that, I'm staring down and making sure along that path that you'll see, my lane's like this, it's just narrowed. Along this 100-meter line, there's doors that constantly want to open. Doors of disappointment, doors of, of distractions. These doors keep on opening and saying, oh, Dwayne, you're not going to win today. Oh, Dwayne, you're rubbish. Oh, Dwayne, that girl said this. Oh, Dwayne, the media said that. All of that's happening. And that happens while you're running. So my focus is making sure that lane is free of distractions. 
all my doors are closed. Every single one of them. Even when that starter says set, them freaking doors like to open. You can hear them. They want to open. Yeah. Now, if you allow your mind to say, oh, let me just close that door and that gun goes bang, guess what? You'll either get left in the blocks or you'll full start. Time after time, we see a number of athletes full start or miss a penalty or make a wrong decision at work or indicate wrong at the indicator when they go left and turn right when they're taking their tests because they allow a thought to come in. you just got to live in the moment and react to the moment. Now, the smart sprinters have the ability to, let's lose an analogy, you're driving in your car and your passenger left tire bursts. You immediately react to that. You know it's going to dip, but you course correct. We have the ability to know if we're landing too heavy on the left foot. And we can course correct it just like that. It's not a, oh my God, I'm landing too heavy. It's like, shit, correct. We can tell when our hands are off center. We can tell if our head's too far back. We can tell if our torso is offline. <laughs> we are so in tune with ourselves physically. We know what it's supposed to feel like. Not so much look like. We can't see what we look like. And that's where we go wrong. We're too concerned with how we look rather than how we feel. Because every competition, every morning, every event that you go through that is different. We're never going to wake up the same side of the pillow. Or you may do, but you're going to be in a different position. You know, so that gun goes bang. You do not talk to yourself. You react, you get out, and sometimes you win. Sometimes the better man or woman does better on the day. But you just got to live in the moment. Have a moment to either rejoice or cry. Crack on to the next. End the season, you review. Like, did we achieve our goals? Yay. If not, let's look at how we can sustain what we've had and look for more opportunities to do better. Done deal. Sometimes so you get a 9.5 by, like you say, both. Sometimes you get a 10.51 like me last week, and I'll take that. <laughs> I, watched that uh, I watched that race this morning. That was yeah. the Orioles in 2009. And you, you did look intimidating that the camera went to, you're in, you're in lane one, I think. Lane one. Yeah. Um, and then who was in it? Bolt, gay. Bolt, gay, yeah. That, that gun went bang. And you saying, normally all of us are like together for 10, 15, 20 meters. That gun went bang. And in my peripheral, I just went like this. <laughs> And you started pretty well, I think. Oh, I started well. Yeah. And Usain is not renowned for a best start. He, he's a good star, but remember, he's six foot four. Mm-hmm. But he had the ability to jump out faster than Gay. Fast and Gay is slow. I'm not slow. Jesus, who else was in there? Richard Thompson was in there. He got out. Within the first 10 meters, he just kept on doing this. And I'm going to be concentrating on my own race, but I could just see him going off for what the hell? Mate, I remember running. <laughs> and when I crossed the line, you said Bob was celebrating around the bend. <laughs> I was like, and I looked at the time, I was like, Jesus. Yeah. That was insane. Yeah. And that's happened to me on three occasions. So you said Bolt's 9.58. That's up for power 9.7. Seven in Gateshead and Tim Montgomery 9.77, 9.7. I've been in three world record races. Mm-hmm. Historic as it is, but it hurts to lose. It's not a nice feeling. Yeah. But I'll be forever in history, I guess. 
Yeah, that race was insane. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, uh, man, thank you so much for taking us through that. That was, that was unbelievable. That was so good to listen. Like all the things you don't really know or you don't think about. I think a lot of people think that people just come out, they do their warm up, they're on the blocks and they run and the fastest person wins. And that's it. Like, it's just so much else going on. So much more. It's a mental mindful out there. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's a buzz. Yeah. Because our sports, like our sports that I grew up playing, you have 70 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. You can play, you can kind of, there's a phrase like play yourself into the game. Just don't do anything silly early on. Now people can't break in the first minute or so. They just, their head is gone. But like, you just don't have that luxury. (laughs) No, there's none. It's all intense. It's a little bit more relaxed now, but Jesus, those days, man, it was rough, but it made you, you know? Mm. And it is getting a little bit like that now. Um, we still have a few characters who've still got the mean mugging face. I still carry that because I think that's just my trademark. So I'm always going to keep doing that. But like I said, it keeps me focused because the moment my eyes start to wander, I'm gone. Yeah. And uh, you can tell who's got it and you can tell who has it. You can just read their body language. Yeah. You, you need to be careful doing podcasts because people won't be intimidated by you anymore. Oh, no, they still worry about that. They still <laughs> um, Oh, good. Dwayne, that was unbelievable. Thank you so much. That was absolutely brilliant, man. I uh, I enjoyed every minute of listening listening to you there. So I feel um, like you've um incredibly honest and passionate about what you're doing and so good. So thank you, man. Pleasure. Where uh where can people go to find you or connect or whatever? So Instagram, I'm Dwayne Chambers 100, D-W-A-I-N Chambers C-H-A-M-B-E-R-S 100. Um, my website is www.chambersforsport.com. Um, there I, I, I do, uh, I've got an academy that runs three times a week at Lee Valley. I got over a hundred kids that coach in my academy, Dwayne Chambers Performance Academy. And I've also got my own running club, the Dwayne Chambers Spring Club. So, you know, it's a virtual club where people can get the best to represent and we do our best to just educate and just keep people alive and involved in enjoying sport. Unreal, man. And that's where you're, you're going to push more and more in that coaching direction. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to do my best to a you know give back to the sport and try and make decent human beings out of it too. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dwayne. If you are watching it on YouTube, you will have seen the big grin slash smile on my face for pretty much the whole episode. Not that I was like a fan girl or anything like that. It was. I'm lucky enough, I'm privileged enough to get to talk to lots of very good athletes, relatively famous athletes. And it wasn't that. It was actually just that I enjoyed the podcast so much, enjoyed the chat so much. I felt so privileged to in a position, so privileged. And hopefully you feel the same to be able to be like sitting at home or going for a walk and listening to a conversation like that and listening to someone with that energy and being that honest and that passionate about what they're talking about and just that like, it wasn't going through the motions at all. I felt like I was living every minute of that. So phenomenal episode. I'm not going to go promoting anything like that or a membership site or anything like that. It goes without saying you should be on our membership site if you want to learn about movement. What I'll ask you to do instead is just to share the podcast, share the episode. If you enjoy, obviously, if you enjoyed it, share it, tag me and Dwayne in it. That would mean the world to me. I'm sure Dwayne would be very grateful as well. I think he's he's on a, a good mission. I would love if more people listen to that episode or whatever else he's doing and stuff like that. I think it, it would inspire a lot of people and a lot of people will get a lot of joy from just listening to someone with that much energy. 
So yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Please give it a share, tag us on Instagram, and I will see you guys next week for another great episode of the world's best podcasts. Talk to you guys soon.